Well, let me just repeat, um, so good to be here. I've been really looking forward to this. William asked me to come across. I uh, was very excited, so the, the weeks and months have rolled in quickly, and it is my, my joy to be here worshiping with you and ministering. Acts chapter 8 is where we are going to be. I, I believe you're fairly acquainted with Acts recently in some sort of readings that you've been doing. I don't know if that's up in the grace communities or what, whatever the context is. So hopefully this little section of scripture will not be too unfamiliar to you. We're going to read Acts 8 and read from verse 4 through to verse 13. And we will then jump in together. This exciting narrative of Acts, historical narrative, that is um, a real faith filler when you read the book of Acts and see the explosive growth of the church. And we're going to see here the gospel going into a particular region. Acts 8 and verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them all with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Ending in verse 13. So what I want to do now is read two verses back to back, verse 7 and verse 9, deliberately omitting verse 8, okay? There's method in the madness. Let me just do that. Verse 7, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city. I'll just stop there. I wonder if you noticed how um, from a literary point of view that verse 8 is really adding nothing to the narrative. I mean, we just missed verse 8 out and verse 7 reads into verse 9 fluidly. It doesn't sound like there's a sentence missing. I mean, there's other verses we could omit and read over, and it's like, well, that doesn't make sense. Something's clearly missing. But verse 8 adds nothing 
in terms of a literary device in the text. It's adding nothing to the narrative in terms of a textual read, which means verse 8 is not in the narrative for a literary reason, it's in for a theological reason. Because it's adding nothing to the literary design, but it is screaming for our attention. The Holy Spirit has axiate verse 8 in this passage through the pen of Luke because the Holy Spirit has got really important need-to-know information for the church. And that really important need-to-know information for the church is this, that the gospel of the kingdom has the potential to impart joy, not simply to individuals, but to an entire city and an entire region. That's the significance of it in the text. It is there for a theological purpose. But because this is the case, because the gospel of the kingdom can indeed impart supernatural joy to the masses, because that is the case, there is going to be a fight for it. And there's a fight in the text for it. That's what I want us to consider this morning. I want us to consider the fight for joy in the city. This, this gospel not only brings joy to this city, but because it does so, there is huge amount of spiritual warfare that is going on. And so we want to see how the gospel brings joy to the city. We're going to consider as well what is the nature of the spiritual warfare that goes around to try and prevent that from happening, what is going on, and hopefully we will begin to connect the dots in terms of how prophetically relevant this is to the church in whatever age she finds herself in, but particularly the days in which we find ourselves in today. So here's the first thing that I want excuse me, I want to draw your attention to. Verse 4, let's just take note of this, that this joy comes to cities through ordinary Christians being faithful where they find themselves, okay? This joy comes where ordinary Christians are faithful where they find themselves. Now, just to step back a little bit, just to understand the context of what's going on, the The book of Acts, as much as it shows the wonderful explosive growth of the church and the power of the church and the wonderful ways in which God used the Christians, the book of Acts is at the same time, and the Gospels for this matter as well, is remarkably honest with the failures of God's people as well. I mean, if you were to make up a story about your religion, you would never write the Gospels in the book of Acts the way the Bible does, because it's so counterintuitive, because the disciples are a bunch of slow learning, quick to say the wrong thing, slow to be obedient. And the book of Acts, actually, and it's, we, we often overlook this, the book of Acts begins with a powerful move of the Spirit through a disobedient church. Where do I get that? Well, In Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus says, this is my mandate. Wait in Jerusalem. When the Spirit comes, you go from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's the mandate. You begin, you spread out. Acts 2, the Spirit comes in power Pentecost. Great. 3,000 get saved. Acts 3, still in Jerusalem. Acts 4, still in Jerusalem. There's a repeated, Jerusalem comes up a number of times. Acts 5, we're still in Jerusalem. Acts 6, we're still in Jerusalem. Till Acts 7, there's a guy called Stephen, and he becomes the first Christian martyr. And he preaches a bold, 
proclamation of Christ, the Old Testament expectation to the religious leaders, and Stephen gets executed. And there's a man called Saul. He may or may not be important for the rest of the Bible. (laughs) He is there uh, persecuting the church. He is endorsing this execution. And then in verse 1 of chapter 8, we read of something. On that day, there arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. But what happens? And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea. Oh, oh, Acts 1-8, that, that old chestnut, right? So the, the church that should have been spreading had, for whatever reason, had stayed safe and comfortable in Jerusalem. And through this persecution, the church is then scattered in verse 1. And that word for scattered appears here again in verse 4. It's picking up on the implication of what has happened from the persecution. Now, this word for scattered only appears one other time in the New Testament. It appears in Acts 11, again in relation to persecution, but it is loaded with theological significance. It's the the Greek word, the verb, the, the diaspora, the scattering. The reason why it is so important is because it's rooted in an Old Testament concept, the scattering of Judah through the nations after exile. But if you know that Old Testament story, there's a very famous passage in Jeremiah where the Lord is communicating to the scattered exiles. And you remember his commands to them? You find yourself in exile? This is what I want you to do. Build houses, get married, plant gardens, have children, love the city you live in, pray for the city on its behalf, be faithful where you find yourself. That's the Old Testament background to this concept of scattering. Because the noun form of this word appears in Peter and James when, he's, when they're writing to the church and they refer to them as exiles. Scattered. In other words, the reason why God causes a physical dispersion here is to get the church to remember that you're physically scattered because you've been spiritually, you're spiritual exiles. You're spiritual exiles. And the church is now physically scattered in order to remind herself that there is a, there's a world out there in which you are to be faithful exiles proclaiming an altogether different kingdom. And so, when we gather as a church, right, you gather here on Sundays, you gather in grace communities. And I often liken our gatherings to loading up an ammunition, right? We're stirring one another in faith. We're encountering the presence of God together. There's word, there's sacrament, there's praise, there's gifts. But, but I want to tell you something. Where the action really is, is when you're scattered during the week. And wherever you are during the week, joy comes to the city where faithful Christians, you see what these guys are? A lot of them are, they're they're unnamed. I mean, we're going to focus on one in a few moments. Now those, we don't know their names. Those are scattered. But what what are they about? They went about preaching the word, which is ironic because why are they scattered in the first place? For the preaching of the word. All of a sudden, a disobedient gathered church is now a scattered church on mission. And this joy that comes to Samaria originates at the fact that there's faithful Christians wherever they find themselves. So listen, whether you are a student or a doctor or a secretary or a plumber or a teacher or a stay-at-home mom or whatever vocational calling is yours, that God has providentially organized and orchestrated in your life, wherever you find yourself in faithfulness, that is your mission faith. And joy gets to spread through ordinary Christians wherever they find themselves. Listen, later on in Acts, 
Paul would even go so far as to say, God allots the times and boundaries of our dwelling. Maybe you're, maybe you're here and you're, you know, frustrated of a, you know, a house move or there's something, oh, I wish God would move here. God determines the allotted boundaries. Where you are, the friends, the family, the social connection, the shop that you regular go in, that regular checkout lady or man that you're always saying hello to, those that know your regular order in Starbucks, whatever the case may be, joy comes to the city through the scattering of ordinary Christians just being faithful in word-based ministry. Now, the Great Commission. Technically speaking, Jesus never commands the church to go. Do you know that? Now, there would be those that say, well, it can be understood because of the grammar of the text, but when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, therefore go, that word for go is actually not a command. It's actually what is known as a participle. It's, a, it's an ing word, going. It's better translated, all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me, therefore as you go, make disciples. Now what is that? You know what that is? Mission is not an event, it's a lifestyle. As you go, as you go in your commute, as you get on the bus and go to work, as you get in the car, as you drop the kids off to school, as you go, there's the faithful, ordinary means that God brings joy to the city. But let's move on. That point went on a little longer than I originally had planned, but maybe there was something in that for someone. Here's the second thing, that this joy comes to the city is centered upon the person of Jesus. Verse 5. This scattering people now, we're told of one individual, and he's called Philip. And in verse 5, this is what Philip is doing. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Messiah. Now, these Samaritans are a mixed heritage of originally Jews that had got assimilated to the dominant culture of the Assyrians, and they were despised. There were people in the middle despised by both Jew and Gentile. They were um, not popular, but they did have some sort of messianic expectation. We, we know this in the Bible. Jesus has a very famous conversation with a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman, and out of the way the conversation was turning and she was embarrassed at the topic of conversation. She wanted to have a debate about worship and says, well, the, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us everything. So there is, a, there is an expectation within the Samaritans that God will sort it out through some special revelation of, of a leader, of a kingly leader, of a Messiah. And Philip goes down to Samaria and he preaches the Messiah. So notice, notice friends, what Philip does not preach. Philip does not go down to Samaria and preach a religious system. He doesn't preach five ways to be a happier Samaritan. He doesn't preach ten steps to have a cleaner home. He doesn't preach helpful laws or nice ethics. Notice as well, he doesn't even proclaim to them joy. He proclaims to them a person. Because this joy that comes to Samaria is centered upon a person. Because this joy is actually the byproduct of encountering a person. As, as one author has put it, Jesus should be our magnificent obsession. 
Jesus is the magnificent obsession in the passage. And in fact, if you link verses 4 and 5 together, it is very clear that as the scattered Christians go about preaching the Word, they are preaching the Word with Jesus Messiah as the centrality of that Word, because you can preach the Word in a really wrong way with not keeping Jesus as the centerpiece, with not keeping the gospel as the centerpiece. Um, Paul says in Colossians, Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. And this is what I really feel stirred to, to really call you to in terms of reminder. Glasgow Grace, there are no magic bullets for reaching a city and reaching a people. No magic bullets. No magic bullets. But you've got something better than a magic bullet. You've got a resurrected king. And th these scattered Christians, being faithful where they were, go down and preach Jesus the Messiah. And I mean, I look at these verses, right? I look at Acts 8, 4 and 5 and think, this seems so ordinary. This seems so unglamorous. I mean, how on earth could this very simple message bring such transformation to the masses? And then I remind myself who exactly is being proclaimed. Because when I get obsessed about the method in terms of this just doesn't sound, this doesn't feel too glamorous, then I realize, but who's the, what's the content about? Who is it exactly that's being proclaimed? And when Paul talks about the proclamation of Christ, in the letters he refers to Christ as the, the inexhaustible riches of God. He's the wisdom and power of God. He is the one that we were made to know. He is full of grace and truth. He is altogether lovely. He is the very one that said to his disciples, ask of me that your joy may be filled. This is the very one we proclaim. Back in 2016, my sister-in-law, my wife's sister, um, wonderfully came to faith uh, to Christ. And my, my wife had prayed for her for years. And we had clearly seen the Lord working in our life for a number of weeks and months. So just a little, just a little um, sanctified warning for some of you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, but you find yourself, for whatever reason, constantly coming up to church, I'm afraid to tell you, um, God's got you and it's inevitable. <laughs> By faith, I say welcome to the family. Because he who began a good work will complete it. We had seen her just mysteriously drawn talking about the things of God, just randomly talking about reading the Bible. And the day that the penny dropped, she was sitting in church and something the worship leader said at the very start of the service just grabbed her attention. And what she could not wait to do was to get home after, she didn't stay for tea, coffee afterwards. She rushed home in order to kind of, but she didn't really know what words to say. She was a bit confused. She's on her own. That's why I love it, the Holy Spirit. It can be far more than, even directly than even the human means. And she opened, she was reading the New Living Translation at the time, and she opened up the Bible, and she come across John chapter 16, and in the New Living Translation, listen to the words of Jesus. And bear in mind who she is at this minute. She is a, not a Christian, coming to Jesus for the first time, and this is what it says. You haven't done this before. Ask, using my name, and you will receive, and you will have abundant joy. And that's the verse that brings her into the kingdom. Um, you can accuse Jesus of many things, but being boring and joyless is not one of them. He's the guy that kind of turns water into wine at a wedding. And wine in the Bible is symbolic of joy. 
So that's the, th the second thing we need to realize. Not only is joy comes to the city through ordinary Christians being faithful where they're at, this joy centers on Jesus. Thirdly, this joy is a result of tangible expressions of the kingdom. Listen, the preaching of Jesus is not a theoretical preaching. It's not simply the preaching of a name. It is the proclamation and the giving over of a living, risen person. And what Jesus does when he is proclaimed is that he loves to then add witness to that proclamation by the Holy Spirit to show the risen, exalted Savior that he is. And in verses 6 and 7, the crowds now, we read in verse 6 that with one accord, which is an interesting phrase in Acts because up until now, this idea of being of one accord is how the church has been described, not unbelievers. How the church, they are one accord in Acts 1. They are with one accord in Acts 2. So the, the one accord speaks about the gathering of people who have already come to Jesus. But now the Holy Spirit is at work to gather unbelievers with one accord and they gather around and we're told that they pay attention to Philip. Just keep that pinned up in your mind. This is not the last time this phrase appears and it's critical in the text. But they don't simply hear Philip. They also see something. The signs that he performed. And in the wider context of Acts, this seems to refer to the fact that Philip lays hands on people. As we see in the text, some are getting healed and some are getting delivered. So as Jesus is being proclaimed, there is then a manifestation of this kingdom power to deliver people either from spiritual ailments or even at times physical ailments, but it is a sign and a testimony to the fact that Jesus is alive, he saves, his kingdom goes out, it pushes back the darkness. Um, so they do not simply hear, they also see. And it is in light of that in verse 8, so there was much joy in the city. You know the implication of that verse in the context is very simply this. Samaria did not know a joy like this before the gospel came to Samaria. That only this message and only this Savior can actually bring the type of joy that is mentioned in the text. Everything else that had gone before did not bring this. But the gospel of the kingdom did. The proclamation of Jesus did. Um, and so maybe you're, again, you're here this morning and maybe not a Christian. One of, the, one of the biggest transitions that you will go through is that God will go from being a concept to being a reality. And that's what the kingdom coming to a life means. So you, you, may, you have a general belief in God. Maybe you have a general, but yeah, yeah I, know that, I know that Jesus died and rose. You've got all these theoretical concepts. But how you know the kingdom has come to you and you have entered the kingdom is that it goes from concept to reality. Verses 6 to 7 is concept to reality. So that it's not just a name being proclaimed. It is a reality being felt. And praise God, it can happen in healings and deliverances. Sometimes it's just... Of course, the most important supreme is a heart that's being given over to Jesus, and you're my Lord. You're my Lord now. But whatever your particular journey is and walk is, the, the, the kingdom means that God goes from being a concept to being a reality. Um, and church, this is what I also remind you of. In Acts 5, Peter says, that we are witnesses to these things, the death and resurrection of Jesus, but this is what he says. We are witnesses to these things, but so is the Holy Spirit. If 
if Glasgow is to be impacted with the gospel, you know what the church of Jesus Christ needs in Glasgow? It needs a double witness. Every church in every area needs a double witness. We need the Holy Spirit's witness unto our witness. We are witnesses to these things, but so is the Holy Spirit. Philip witnesses to Christ in verse 5, and the Holy Spirit adds that witness. The risen Jesus adds witness by the Spirit in verses 6 and 7. Um, but this is what we need to end on. Because all of this is true, because joy comes to the city through scattered ordinary Christians, because this joy centers in Jesus, and because this joy is a result of Jesus himself bringing kingdom manifestations to the lives of people, this is what you're to expect. There is going to be a fight for this. And there is a fight that takes place to keep this from happening. And it's not a fight that necessarily even comes in response to this. It's a fight that's already been taking place before it comes. So verses 9 to 13, we are now introduced to a guy called Simon. But what Luke wants us to know is that Simon had already been in operation in Samaria before the gospel comes, right? So do you see in verse 9 how we have this phrase, who had previously practiced magic? So Luke, Luke gives us a really, really important context. There's a guy called Simon. He is proclaiming himself to be great, really humble. He's proclaiming himself to be great. The people are amazed at what he's doing because he also has signs of his own. He also, do, do you see how Simon and Philip are actually being compared? Um, Simon has actually got signs of his own, and he, up until now, he has amazed the people with his magic. He has amazed people with his message. And do you see verses 10 and 11? The people, it's, it's mentioned twice, the people had paid attention to Simon. Paid attention twice in verses 10 and 11. Now, does that phrase sound familiar? When Philip went down to Samaria, the people had paid attention. And this is so, so important. Listen, the impact of the gospel in the city takes place on the ground level of our attention. Our attention. Up until Philip entered Samaria, the people were paying attention to Simon. But then Philip comes into Samaria, and their attention goes from being drawn to Simon to being drawn to Philip. There's a fight for attention. That, so I was meeting another pastor, and I was walking down Buchanan Street yesterday, and noise, hustle, bustle. I walk past a tent, mark, uh, like a gazebo, free Islamic literature. I go to another gazebo, free Palestine. Different type of free, but free Palestine and all information. I've got people performing street art with the ventriloquist and all of the... I just, you know what I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, walk, I'm, I'm aware of what I'm preaching tomorrow and I'm thinking, distraction, attention, attention, attention. Come round to us. Let me give you attention. Let me give you attention. So let me, let me ask you a question. What is currently gathering your attention? Because a city like Glasgow, you've got a whole range of different things calling out for your attention. This is Simon the magician. You've got... Um, You've got spirituality left, right, and center. Maybe you're here and you know someone that says, I'm not very religious, I'm very spiritual. You're religious. It's just, it's not, it's a play on words. You've got your own religious system. And what that might look like is, um, I've got a Buddha in the hallway, I've got healing crystals in my bathroom, I've got a dream catcher in my bedroom, and I just like to 
you know, makes me feel good. I'm grabbing my attention. Maybe it's the, maybe it's the spiritual distraction, or maybe it's just the, maybe it's just the hedonistic attraction. A line of coke here, a Tinder hook up there, house party here, and it's just, what is grabbing your attention? Who's your proverbial Simon? Because as Simon and Philip are being compared here, Simon preaches a message about himself being great. Philip preaches a message about Jesus being great. Simon preaches a message that has works of power. Philip preaches a message and there's also works of power. But there's one critical difference in the passage. Because there's a glaring omission about Simon's work. You know what the glaring omission is? Only Philip's message gives joy. People might be temporarily amazed at Simon's message, but deep down there is something that wasn't being satisfied. But Jesus Christ, but this gospel that actually frees us to be the people that we were actually created to be by our Creator through the redemption of the Son, through the wonderful ministry of the Holy Spirit who breaks chains and unites us to the one who himself loved us and gave himself for us. You see, um, you see those Reiki classes? You know that Reiki teacher can't do that? Reiki teacher can't die for you and rise again. See, that dr- see those drugs and alcohol? You're laying yourself on the altar for them that promise so much but deliver so little. But you see, Jesus... Not only does Jesus promise, Jesus delivers on what he promises. And that is the type of joy that every city needs to hear. So Glasgow Grace, will you also be a people that is not distracted? Maybe you're here and you're Christian. You know what? I've been distracted from the very joy that's rightfully mine in Jesus. Come to him afresh this morning. It was to his own disciples that Jesus says, ask that your joy may be full. Be the joy-filled people proclaiming a joy-filled message to a city that desperately needs to hear it and a gospel message that works. Let me pray for us.